Can I use it? Uh, good morning, or good afternoon, I guess now. Can you hear me? Good. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'm Mark Pipus. I'm the Hematology Oncology Fellowship Director, and as such, it is my distinct pleasure uh, this afternoon to introduce our speaker. Uh, it is Dr. Brett Gorley. Dr. Gorley is a third-year fellow in hematology oncology uh, here at the North Cotton Cancer Center. Uh, he came to us from um, Oregon Health and uh, Science University, where he uh, completed his medicine degree. He then went on to the University of Minnesota and uh, performed a residency in internal medicine. He's been with us now for three years. Uh, he's done an outstanding job. And he and his lovely family will soon be leaving us uh, for Spokane, Washington, where he will be a member of the Rockwood Clinic. He'll be joining as the fifth member in uh, a large practice. Uh, it's been our pleasure to have him here for three years. He's an outstanding physician uh, and has been a, a tremendous mentor for our junior fellows as well. Uh, Dr. Gorley uh, would like to admit that he has a million shares of Novartis stock. I'm kidding. <laughs> He has, no, he has no conflicts or disclosures uh, and has uh, attested that he is not receiving any direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this lecture this afternoon. He will be speaking uh, to us this afternoon about uh, coagulation and cancer. Welcome, Dr. Gorley. so many uh, familiar faces from the last three years. It's uh, truly been a great privilege to be here. And, and uh, at the onset, I'd just like to thank everyone who, um, who's been a mentor, a colleague, um, um, someone that's been uh, here for me in the last three years. And I, I really, really appreciate that. Um, today, we're going to talk about coagulation and cancer. And we have the obligatory disclosure slides. Um, as uh, Dr. Piper says, I don't have any financial interests. I'm still waiting for that Novartis purchase to go through. Uh, they, they're not putting me on a payment plan, though, so it might be a while. Um, I will be discussing uh, uses for medications for which they are not FDA approved, um, but I'm not receiving any payments for giving you this information. So um, the objective today is we're going to review um, the history and the mechanism of uh, two of the most commonly used anticoagulations, uh, anticoagulants. We'll be discussing um, possible links between coagulation and cancer. And then we'll um, talk about some of the research that's going on here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, um, looking at this link. And overall, uh, my hope is that I can change your, your thought about coagulation. And, and I know this, and I can hear a little uh, murmuring out there in the audience, and I know that this is a slide that provokes fear and anxiety, especially in fellows' uh, lives, but in everyone's life. And, and we can see here, um, you know, this, uh, this gentleman, I'm assuming is a gentleman because he has hairy legs, but has a, a big swollen leg consistent with a DVT. And so let's just talk about um, blood clots here for a few moments. So um, developing a thrombosis is not only um, can be fatal, but it also is morbid. Um, about 300,000 people each year in the United States will have a, a, a VTE, or venous thrombotic event. Um, and up to 50% of patients with a symptomatic DVT will be found to have a PE if you look hard enough. Patients who have a symptomatic PE, so people that come in with chest pain or pressure or shortness of breath, are five times more likely to die than people who just show up with a symptomatic leg DVT. Um, Patients have complications from these blood clots, not only in the acute episode, but they can develop things like pulmonary hypertension, which can occur up to 3.8% of the time. And post-thrombotic syndrome, which we see very frequently in the coagulation clinic, um, can occur up to 50% of the time in patients with uh, blood clots in the lungs. Um, blood clots have been around as long as we have, I would imagine. And, um, the interesting thing, at least from my perspective, is now VTEs uh, are considered a medical type of problem. But back in the, the pre-1900s, blood clots were actually a surgical problem. Um, and the surgeons, even back then, um, 
noted that there was a difference between having a blood clot that was provoked by them maybe doing surgery on someone or having cancer or pressure on the vein, or a blood clot that occurred because of um, who knows why, they couldn't figure it out. And so Sir William Bennett said in one of his dissertations in 1911, said thrombosis is in normal veins, all other things being equal, a more dangerous condition than thrombosis in a venous arrangement, which is not normal for the obvious reason that, supposing that coagulation occurs in the vein which is normal, there is seen that the defects in the blood, no reason why it should not increase to any extent to occur in the veins in any part of the body. Now, Dr. Chamberlain and Dr. Ornstein would chastise him for the long run sentence. But the, the, the crux of it is that clots that happen in normal veins, um, there's something different about the milieu in, in those patients. So complications, um, and the reason why surgeons were in charge of this was because this frequently happened on patients who were receiving surgery. Surgical DVT rates before the uh, modern era of uh, prophylaxis occurred up to 42% of time in normal people. The rate of pulmonary embolism, and this is looking at data where they didn't have CT angiograms, was 7.5% uh, of the time. It's also noted that patients with malignancy, and this is a point that we're gonna kind of hone in on here from time to time, uh, during this talk is patients with malignancy who had surgery had blood clots that occurred about 60% of the time. And when people had a blood clot that occurred and they were symptomatic from it, they may have died half the time. So that means about 300 people before their prophylaxis um, would have a risk of dying from a pulmonary embolism from surgeries that we think of as somewhat mundane at this point. So and we're going to talk about um, our, our goals to improve these outcomes, um, and we're going to talk about heparin and warfarin. So I'd like to give just a brief history on heparin, and I always like giving the history of these anticoagulants because there's there's a lot that we can can learn from this, and uh, at the very least we can uh, nod our hats to people who put in such hard work before us. So um, there was a, a gentleman named Jane McLean who was working on actually uh, finding pro-thrombotic substances. And he was taking cow hearts and livers and intestines and he was boiling them in these um, organic solutions and um, he kind of let them sit in vats at 60 degrees for three months at a time and you can only imagine what the smell would be like at that, that period of time. Um, and he noticed that some of these solutions that he made actually prevented clotting from happening in cat's blood, which was the opposite of the fact that he was looking for. Um, one of his uh, people, this Dunning, uh, that worked in his lab at that time, um, actually started taking this process and commercializing it um, because there was, a, uh, you know, there was an obvious need for an anticoagulation, anticoagulant, uh, because of the risks of surgery, which I already uh, discussed. Um, by the late or by the mid-1900s, uh, the majority of this uh, production had moved to Stockholm. And the thing that I found super interesting was it took 40,000 pounds of pig intestines. I can't imagine the truck bringing that in, first of all. But 40,000 pounds of pig intestines just to make five pounds of finished product. Um, and currently, the majority of our heparin products are actually made overseas in China. Um, like many other things, this has been uh, exported. Um, and there's there's some misgivings about the safety of this of these products, um, with China being our only supplier or being the biggest supplier, I should say. So back in the, the 1930s, um, and this is a quote from Dr. Gauvier, who reminded me that this actually came from one of our clinical pharmacologists. Use drugs while they're fashionable, efficacious, and they don't have any side effects. Um, and heparins early on, not only were they used for anticoagulation. But you know they uh, had great uses of prolonging insulin. I don't know if this is uh, this is true because we don't see this with heparin now um, to reduce allergic reactions uh, to transfusions and so on and so forth. They really uh, tried it in a lot of different ways. Um, but even in the 1940s, so heparin had been around for a couple of decades at this point. Um, people didn't know how it worked. They knew that it worked, and they knew that it prevented coagulation in people and in animals. Um, but there was some unknown substance, and they just didn't know what it was. And it took until the 1980s before they actually found the substance. And uh, this has been called antithrombin. So this is a, a very highly 
accurate model of uh, how coagulation happens in the blood. Um, and so we have the antithrombin uh, molecule with its binding site here. And it gets exposed to this heparin molecule, which is a polysaccharide uh, multimer. And it wraps itself around the antithrombin molecule and causes the activation site to become significantly more active. At that point, thrombin uh, binds to the active binding site. And this heparin molecule actually wraps itself all the way around, making a nice little nest and preventing uh, anti coagulation from proceeding. So clinical trials of this heparin substance um, did show that we were significantly, uh, that we were able to reduce uh, DVT complication rates by a significant amount. Um, DVT rates uh, in this study went from 26% in the control group versus 4% in the heparin group. Um, in another study, 42% to 8.3%. And this, was, this effect was also seen in the patients with malignancy. So patients with malignancy, remember, you know, 50 to 60% of them would have blood clots after surgery. Um, in the control group, <coughs> went down to 6.7% uh, in the heparin group. They also discovered that uh, treatment of, of pulmonary embolism um, was also possible. Um, and so a 26% mortality rate, so remember these are clinically evident uh, blood clots back in the 70s, and this reduced the mortality rate to 4%. So this was a significant step forward for the treatment of these patients. They also showed that the recurrence rate was also significantly lower um, with the treatment of heparin. Using a, a study that we don't use anymore because we found that um, our serogram shows that this uh, I125 fibrinogen scan is not as sensitive, so don't try to worry. Um, radiology probably wouldn't even know what it is. Um, but looking at this for blood clots, um, did show that um, using heparin prophylaxis uh, did decrease blood clots. The previous standard at that time was dextran and PG. Looking at the patients with malignancy at this time, so remember that 60% uh, more or uh, in pulmonary embolism rate with malignant patients um, was significantly reduced, um, in this case, by uh, a third. Um, and so we showed that the heparin molecule was very good at uh, reducing and treating VTEs. And we tried to, to culminate this and try to find the, the least or the smallest molecule that was actually active. Because also uh, through these decades of using heparin, we had already become associated with HIT, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia and thrombotic syndrome, um, which in itself was very morbid and fatal. And so there was um, this and a variety of reasons, they started to try to find the lowest common denominator. Um, and so this brought about the low molecular weight heparins. So it should be pointed out low molecular weight heparins are purified from heparin products. So that's something to remember. But this is finding that uh, these areas where we have something that's active to prevent coagulation, um, but much, much smaller. And we have a variety of uh, variety of uh, drugs, enoxaparin and daltaparin, I think, is what most of us are familiar with. Um, and we use uh, enoxaparin uh, for the most part uh, here at the Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And so we have a variety of these uh, low molecular weight heparins. So let's talk about how low molecular weight heparins work, um, since we already showed the animation for the other one. So again, so the low molecular weight heparins are short. And so here's the active. A heparin molecule that they purify. It binds to antithrombin. It does not wrap itself around antithrombin. It activates antithrombin. It makes it um, really active to bind uh, factor 10A in this case instead of thrombin. And it binds the 10A. And then the low molecular weight heparin is then able to disassociate itself from its complex and continue binding to other antithrombin molecules. So that's heparin, and we'll, we'll come back to it here in a little bit, but I want to take a break and uh, go over to warfarin. And um, warfarin has a, a, a history that's a little bit closer to my heart. As uh, Dr. Pipe said, I trained at the University of Minnesota, um, and a lot of this happened just next door in Wisconsin. So during the 1920s, it was noted that uh, cows who got contaminated hay would 
develop a bleeding diathesis. They would actually start bleeding to death in the fields. And they, um, it was a significant problem for these farmers. Um, the vets at that time, the veterinarians, were, were very astute and they, they realized that it was spoiled hay and that replacing the hay with good hay or without contaminated hay was one part of it. And they also discovered that doing blood exchanges um, would also help the cattle at this time. During one particularly cold winter, and the winters are cold in the upper Midwest, um, uh, Professor Link was sitting in his office and a farmer came in from one of the Wisconsin fields with 100 pounds of this contaminated hay. And his entire herd of cattle was currently bleeding to death in the uh, frozen fields of Wisconsin. Um, Professor Link uh, knew a little bit about this, this condition because he interviewed the University of Minnesota and they weren't able to nab him. Um, and so uh, he actually knew about sweet clover disease, is what they called it at this time, because the hay had the smell of sweet clover, freshly cut clover. Um, but the nice thing about this, nice thing was not that the fact that the farmer had bleeding cattle, but the, the nice thing was that Professor Link was prevented with 100 pounds of his hay. So then he could begin start uh, uh, research trials looking into what might be the actual active substances causing uh, this contamination and causing the cattle to bleed. He um, started feeding this hay to a variety of animals, and he showed several uh, key key points to this, and then I'd just like to list a few of them. So um, he found that different animals responded differently to the same weight-based dosing that he was giving them of this hay. There seemed to be some kind of effect to vitamin K and vitamin C in these animals that would um, mitigate or decrease the effect, or if they starved them from vitamin K and vitamin C, um, it made the, the hay more efficacious. Uh, certain types of drugs, like sulfur drugs, chloroform, augmented this uh, effect, whereas other types of drugs would actually mitigate the effect and cause uh, less uh, uh, thinning of the blood. And uh, lactating females uh, seem to show resistance of this uh, compound. After about six years of work, uh, the link lab finally isolated the active compound, which is dihumerol. Um, and shortly thereafter, uh, Professor Link passed this molecule on uh, to begin trials um, in the clinical setting. Uh, as he says, I passed it off to the clinicians, and he didn't have much to do with it after that point. But Dr. Link's story doesn't end there. Um, unfortunately, uh, in the 1940s, he developed uh, tuberculosis and fluorescein. And per the standard of care at that time, uh, he was put in a sanatorium um, until he you know, cleared this so he wouldn't contaminate the, um, uh, his uh, fellow citizens. And during this time, he said he had a lot of time to ponder on his notes and think about things. And while he was doing this, uh, there must have been a significant rat infestation because he really, really wanted to think of ways to kill these rats. And he started thinking about these compounds that he had seen, you know, animals, multiple animals, including rats, rabbits, and cow, bleed from. So he started thinking about giving the rats this blood-thinning medicine as potentially a way to control the rat population. So when he came back to the, the lab, um, he pitched this idea to the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, um, and he identified a compound number 42 um, that they had synthesized in his lab, which they thought would be particularly active. This uh, particular compound was much more active than dicumerol, and it was previously felt by the clinicians to be too active to be actually tried in human subjects. Um, as you can see, uh, the WARF, or underline, um, which is the beginning of the word warfarin. And then the errand for warfarin came from humorin, um, which is the backbone of the molecule, the dicumerol molecule. And so this is how warfarin obtained uh, its name. As I said before, the compound was felt to be too potent for human use, and so we had to have a brave volunteer, um, which was an unfortunate case of Dr. Captain Love, who um, was suffering from a severe depression while in the service. Uh, he very carefully read the package insert for the rat poison, and he figured out how much he had to dose himself with this warfarin rat poison to cause a toxic effect on himself. Um, at that time, the warfarin was mixed with uh, 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 organic substances that were safe to eat. Um, they primarily used cornstarch at that time, and he took 
this large dose of warfarin trying to commit suicide. Those of us familiar with warfarin know that if you take an overdose of warfarin, it doesn't kill you instantly. And so he was left there pondering what he'd done to himself. Um, and he started to reflect on, maybe this is not such a good idea. <laughs> and he presented to medical attention. Um, and they identified true clover disease. And they started administering vitamin K and drug transfusions. And he was none for worse to wear. However, this was the first successful clinical trial on a person. I guess it wasn't a clinical trial, but this was the first experiment in a person. And it showed that warfarin actually might be a better drug to, thin the, to you know, cause this thinning of the blood um, than the dicumerol, which they were having difficulty getting high enough doses in people um, to use. Um, based off of this, um, clinical trials started to go into action. And the cardiologists were very excited about this. And there was a cardiologist in Colorado who actually used this in President Eisenhower after having a heart attack. And after that, uh, they said, everyone said, it's good enough for the president, it's good enough for me. And Humanin became the, uh, or Warfarin became the, the main drug for uh, clinicians to use. Warfarin is an interesting uh, molecule. It's synthesized. So anything that's made in a, in a test tube um, has the possibility of becoming, uh, having enantiomers. And so there's two optical isomers, the S and the R. Um, and both of them are active, although the S enantiomer is much more active. Um, in this case, both these and uh, both these molecules inhibit vitamin K oxide reductase, which whose job is to reduce <coughs> oxidized vitamin K so that it can recycle and uh, put a, a carbon dioxide moiety on the profactors for factor two, seven, nine, and ten which are the vitamin K uh, factor dependence. And I always remembered it by using my fingers 2, 7, 9, and 10. Uh, it was the only way that I could remember it in medical school. <laughs> so um, this is the, the mechanism for the warfarin. So you might be asking yourselves, well, we're, we're talking about cancer, and these drugs are old school. You know, We've had these around for, for many, many decades at this point. Um, so why, why discuss these two drugs for such a long time? And um, I'm going to take one step to the side on, on that type of question and, and just say, as we already know, that cancer and thrombosis, we've known they've been linked for many, 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 many years. Um, up to 12% of patients with an unprovoked, so we don't know why they had a blood clot, up to 12% of patients with an unprovoked clot are found to have an occult cancer, although this seems a little bit high in my, my personal practice. Um, it's also been noted that warfarin has had anti-tumor effects as an single agent um, in certain mouse models and in melanoma cell lines. And our very own Dr. Zakarski, who said he was very, very sorry that he could not be here today, um, also showed that um, certain types of cancers, uh, such as renal cell and malignant melanoma and small cell lung cancers, had an intact coagulation cascade where they would actually make these Profigulant factors. So, um, continuing to uh, follow Dr. Zakarski's work, uh, back in the, the 80s, and maybe this even started in the 70s, but it was published in 1984, uh, Dr. Zakarski uh, did the VA cooperative uh, study number 75. And the goal of the study was to give patients um, warfarin in addition to their uh, chemotherapy. Um, and so they uh, obtained an INR between two and three, um, one week before they started their, or their, their chemotherapy, their cancer-directed therapy. And being a, a BA cohort, um, you can see that the majority of these were lung, colon, prostate, and head and neck cancers. Um, there are not very many uh, women in the military, especially at this time, and so breast cancer uh, actually wasn't represented at all in this study. Uh, progression of disease and overall survival um, were the, the main outcomes, um, and they didn't see a change in this, in this cohort of patients. But they did notice that in the small cell cohort, um, there may have been a small improvement in overall survival and progression of disease. This was followed up by additional four studies, and this is a meta-analysis looking at these four studies, looking at the addition of warfarin to therapy, cancer type directed therapy. We can see that there's um, a wide variety in the types of cancers that are represented in these studies. 
Um, and the small, or the small cell, of course, we're specifically looking at that signal that Dr. Zakharsky had picked up in his previous study. We can see that none of these reach statistical significance for overall survival of one year. Um, and so it appeared to be a negative study. And this, uh, this panned out to be true. All the confidence intervals pass over um, one for survival up to five years. So it did not change overall survival. They also showed that significant bleeding, and major bleeding was people who needed a transfusion, hospitalization, or died because of bleeding. Um, the, the odds ratio, or the risk, of that happening was increased by fourfold. And minor bleeding was increased by threefold. So a lot of bleeding. Uh, there did seem to be a trend towards um, reducing thrombotic event in this patient, patient population. The study was not powered to look at that endpoint. And uh, it did cross the confidence interval of one. Looking at heparin, so going to the heparin story on, the, on this same theme, there's been nine studies um, that was reviewed in this Cochrane analysis um, looking at heparin as an adjuvant, uh, an adjunct treatment for solid tumors. Uh, you can see that they used a variety of different types, and I would imagine that the low molecular weight heparin trials were based on who they could get funding from. Um, and one heparin versus another didn't really show to be that different uh, in any of the endpoints they looked at. They did show, however, that at two years, that there was a statistically significant reduction in death in this patient cohort. And remember, so this, these are people getting standard treatment, didn't have a reason to be on an anticoagulant except for this study, um, and they did show that death at two years was significantly improved. Um, the bleeding events were not statistically increased in this cohort, um, and thrombotic events were decreased. This is um, another way of looking at the same data. Um, this is at 12 months. So remember, the signal for overall survival benefit didn't happen until 24 months. But in the small cell cohort, it seemed to be present that there was a statistical improvement at two years, although there was only two studies that uh, contributed to that group. So the conclusions so far are that currently warfarin can't be recommended as an adjunct treatment um, for solid malignancies. And prophylactic heparins does have an obvious role in the solid, solid malignancies, um, but you may consider it in small cell lung cancer, although this is far from the standard of care. Well, another question you might ask is, is there any benefit to using one anticoagulant or another? And we know that the outcome um, in any patient who's had a, a BTE for mortality, recurrent VTE, and major bleeding are not statistically significant between the two types of treatments. Um, in cancer-associated blood clot, VTE, one of his colleagues are one of the um, groups that looked at this, and this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And these are patients who had active cancer, had developed the blood clot, and they looked at how best to treat these patients. They used daltaparin at this time, and they um, used daltaparin subcutaneously um, until, a sub, or until either they obtained a therapeutic INR, which they uh, classified as 2.5. Um, and then they have another cohort that used daltaparin uh, for 30 days, and then they reduced it to 3 quarters after 30 days. Um, and they did this for up to six months. The hazard ratio for repeat VTE event favor the use of the heparin over warfarin. And you can see here, this is the probability of a recurrent venous thromboembolism. And you can see that this is a, a pretty good uh, spread between the two curves. And it was highly statistically significant. Overall survival, however, was not different between the two different cohorts. Although I should point out that this cut off at six months, you know, 180 days. And we didn't see the signal for the heparins emerge as a beneficial factor um, in the heparin cohort until two years. So as shown, the death uh, was not as significantly affected, although a heparin has become our standard of care in patients <coughs> who have developed the BTE. Um, one thing that's interesting about the Lee trial, however, is that almost 50% of the patients <coughs> were breast cancer patients, and 
breast cancer patients have the lowest or one of the lowest incidences of blood clots in any of our cancer populations. And so the results may be biased by that. So for an acute VTE event, this, our standard, as I said, is the, the use of heparin for at least six months. And after six months, we're, to be honest, not quite sure what to do after that, which, which type of anticoagulation is better. Um, we know that, um, let's see, I said that. And then um, we don't know if either class of anticoagulants for, uh, improves overall survival. So this data would seem to suggest that there isn't a role for anticoagulation therapy in cancer treatment. I'm going to have this step to the side one more time. Um, so currently, the tests for anticoagulation that are available in the clinic are the PTT, the PT, and the TT, which are widely used and widely misinterpreted uh, by many of our, our colleagues. Um, there's additional tests. There's the antiheparin, uh, the ACT, ECT, uh, factors, antigens, and activities. Um, which many people as well have difficulty interpreting. Um, but the thing about all of these is none of these give a global view of anticoagulation. They, they take the coagulation cascade and they take it into piecemeal. An example of this um, is someone who has an INR of three in end-stage liver disease who develops a thrombotic event, which we've all, uh, or many of us have probably seen this type of an event. You could say, well, they're anticoagulated. How how could they develop a blood clot? Well, the reason for this is, as I said, because our tests only look at a certain portion of the coagulation cascade. The intrinsic pathway is primarily monitored by the PT. The intrinsic pathway is primarily monitored by the PTT. But none of them uh, follow all the way through to the common pathway. And so if we had a test that could tell us more about the common pathway, we would have a, a better overall view of what's going on in the person's personal milieu for coagulation. And this brings us to thrombin generation. And this is the calibrated automatic thrombogram machine. It's made in Norway, or in the Netherlands. And this is a research tool. It's not something that's available to clinicians. Um, but we're going to be talking about um, this. And, so thrombin generation, as you saw in the coagulation cascade, thrombin is the last active enzyme before we take fibrinogen to fibrin. And so this is, in essence, the rate-limiting enzyme of the entire coagulation cascade. Thrombin generation, as analyzed by the CAT assay, um, causes thrombin, or has thrombin, bind with a fluorogenic substrate that emits light. And so this machine, uh, monitors the amount of thrombin that's produced um, based on that light um, luminescence. Now, I'm just going to take a few moments and have everyone just kind of look at this and burn it into their minds, because what we're going to be talking about will, will make more sense if you have a, a good idea. If you have a piece of paper, you might even want to draw it out. Um, I, I guess I should have brought some handouts. <laughs> so there's the lag time. And so this is the time where everything's happening upstream in the coagulation cascade. This is um, where, in essence, the, IA, the, the PT and the PTT are occurring. As thrombin starts to be made, it feeds back into those upper pathways and actually potentiates its, uh, its own creation um, by increasing the activity of the upstream enzymes. We get a peak amount of thrombin production, and this is a rate, and then Things like antithrombin protein CNS slow down coagulation or reuse up the substrate and the reaction dies down. The amount of thrombin produced is the area under the curve, the estimated thrombin potential. And the points that we'd like, to, I'd like you to remember is the lag time, the time before the reaction starts going, the peak, and the estimated thrombin potential. This, uh, this assay has been studied uh, in the Venkats uh, study, which was uh, performed uh, or published in 2011. They showed that in cancer patients, that if you were in the 75th percentile, um, and by their machine, if you had a, greater than, a peak greater than 611 nanomolars of thrombin production, that you were more likely to develop um, a VTE event. 
Um, further, it's been shown that patients who have high markers of coagulation um, are more likely to have progression of their cancer and a higher mortality. Now, the high markers of thrombin production or coagulation markers make sense that you would develop a blood clot. But why would it make sense that you would have a higher progression of their cancer or a higher mortality? Um, and there's a, there's a couple of reasons why this may be the case. You could say, well, the cancer is more active, and so it's you know accidentally causing um, activation of this cascade. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a few moments. So here's here's a little. Uh, uh, bias promotion of uh, one of our studies that we have here at, uh, at Dartmouth. Uh, so this is the D12096 uh, coagulation activation in brain neoplasms. And uh, this is a study which myself, Dr. Ornstein, and Dr. Fadul, and uh, Sharupa, and I don't know if she, she was going to try to make it, and I don't know if she's here or not, are, are uh, undergoing. We've uh, obtained uh, generous funding from the NECOS uh, Cancer Group, the Northern New England Clinical, Clinical Oncology Society and the Neuro-Oncology Department uh, to perform this research. We're looking for patients with glioblastomas or meningiomas, and our primary endpoint is to look at the pre-surgical peak thrombin generation in the glioblastoma group um, as compared to healthy age and sex match controls. Uh, we're also, as a secondary endpoint, looking at the meningioma patients uh, for the same, same endpoints. We'll also be looking at other biomarkers of coagulation activation, the D-dimer, the P-selectin, tissue factor and tissue factor pathway inhibitor um, in, the, in the plasma and in the uh, tumor specimens. And um, I didn't give this the most recent update, um, but we've actually enrolled a, a reasonable number of patients. Where our goal is to enroll 30 glioblastoma patients and 30 meningioma patients. Um, and we've had a couple more enrollments from uh, the timing of this graph. Um, we have had one VTE event, and this was in a meningioma patient in the post-op setting. So if you have anybody with a glioblastoma, or if you have your own glioblastoma, um, we'd be happy to uh, enroll you on a trial. Um, and you can give myself or Sharupa a call. Uh, our figure numbers are there. Uh, and uh, since Sharupa, I don't see Sharupa out here, uh, she's very nice. <laughs> so let's let's talk about some of the results we have from uh, a thrombin generation in other types of cancer. And this is a data that um, uh, Dr. Ornstein and uh, two of our past fellows who are currently out in the wild uh, doing their own thing, uh, Bria and Monique, uh, shared with us. And so thrombin generation in plasma cell dyscrasias. Um, and so plasma cell dyscrasia is a type of cancer for plasma cells. Um, and patients sometimes have uh, what I like to call the polyp of the plasma cell dyscrasia, MGUS, monoclonal gammopathy of uncertain significance. And these patients have a very low but real risk of developing multiple myeloma over time. And depending on risk factors, it, it averages out to be about 1% per year. Uh, patients with MGUS develop multiple myeloma. So the risk is low, but, but real. So patients, um, healthy controls, we, we made them 100% of thrombin generation. Um, and this is the lag time. So we're looking at the lag times. So remember that graph I tortured you with earlier? Um, and so this is the lag time. The lag time was significantly decreased in the MGUS patient, patients and the multiple myeloma patients, suggesting that coagulation activation is uh, significantly increased in these two populations. And it's interesting that the NGUS patients have this significant increase um, compared to healthy controls, because like I said before, we generally think of this as a benign disorder. The average peak thrombin generation, which was uh, in the Bencat study most correlated with development of a blood clot, as compared to healthy controls, again, showed that the NGUS and the multiple myeloma patients a significant increase, and the multiple myeloma patients in comparison to the MGUS patients had a significant increase. And finally, um, the estimated thrombin, or the, uh, the thrombin production um, 
was also increased. So patients with NGUS have a significant increase of coagulation activation as compared to healthy controls, and patients with multiple myeloma have a significant increase in coagulation activation compared to MGUS patients and healthy controls. This, uh, this data has been accepted as an oral presentation at the thrombosis and hemostasis issues in cancer, uh, which will be uh, in Italy. And um, I'm not sure who, who got the, the short stick to go to this meeting, but maybe the whole group will be able to go. Unfortunately, I'm not on that ticket. Um, so again, I want to torture you with the thrombogram because this is a, a taste of uh, something we're going to talk about just a little bit more in depth. Um, just to give you a chance to, again, look at the lag time, the peak thrombin generation, and the estimated thrombin potential. <coughs> As I said before, Dr. Zakarski and Dr. Orenstein um, have shown that melanoma, amongst other types of cancer, um, developed fibrin. And this fibrin, which is in the brown stain, surrounds the melanoma cells. And initially, it was thought maybe this is a protection of the melanoma cells to protect it from chemotherapy and other types of things. Um, but it's also been shown, or uh, we've shown here at Dartmouth at least, that, um, and others have shown this as well, um, that there's also an increase in thrombin production, which is also shown to be in the, um, the melanoma cells. And one could ask, well, is this a protective mechanism? Is there some other reason for this? Is this just happening because of dumb luck and, and you know, we shouldn't get so excited about it? Well, as we said already, malignant melanoma cells produce an intact coagulation cascade that leads to thrombin generation. And thrombin obviously plays a role in coagulation, but it's also been shown that increased thrombin levels cause tumor growth, cell proliferation, metastasis, invasion, and angiogenesis, which are kind of off-label targets for um, what we would think of why these malignant cells would be causing an increased coagulation and cascade activation. So one proposed mechanism for this is the thrombin receptor, or the protease-activated receptor, or the PAR receptor. And here's our phospholipid uh, bilayer on a cell surface, and we have a G protein, which is the PAR receptor, and there's four of these uh, types of genes. And they have, this, um, they have this moiety that actually prevents the activation site from being active. And what happens is this, act, this site can be cleaved by thrombin. And so thrombin comes in and cleaves that and makes this PAR receptor active. PAR then recruits the uh, receptor thyrosine kinases, which bind their uh, respective ligands, two of which I've uh, put in there, which then cause their downstream effects, which affects gene regulation. Um, and the gene regulation changes proliferation and migration. I would like to point out that in the MAP kinase pathway, um, Melanoma cells, oops, melanoma cells are known to have mutations in the RAF pathway, and there's a significant amount of melanoma that has BRAF mutated, um, uh, BRAF mutated um, activation, and it's actually been a treatment target. The um, this information. Um, has been applied clinically in terms of BRAF inhibitors, which has been published before and is one of the mainstays for malignant melanoma that's metastatic. Um, other roles are currently being explored. But um, we've been looking at this uh, from a coagulation standpoint. And there was an abstract published in the very most recent ASH meeting back in December that showed that patients who had an 85% shrinkage of the tumor um, after starting uh, venurafamib uh, had a significant change in the thromograms. And the lag time increased, the time to peak increased, the estimated thrombin potential decreased, and the thrombin peak decreased. And all of these show coagulation activation decrease. What's interesting is that this same effect was not shown in patients that had what we would consider a good response to the therapy, so a 25 to 84% amount of shrinkage. 
In the Ernst Stoff lab, we've been looking at this, um, and we took wild type malignant melanoma cell lines, um, and you can read through all the different cell lines we've done this with, and we took these wild type cell lines, and we took paper, uh, cell lines that had the BRAF mutation, and we exposed them, uh, in this case, to the BRAF in, to a BRAF inhibitor. Now, the wild type cell lines uh, actually show maybe even a little increase in coagulation activation, not statistically significant. So their coagulation activation did not change. However, in the BRAF mutant cell lines, there was a significant decrease in the coagulation activation seen in these cell lines. And these, I should mention that these graphs, so we have 100%. So 100% is the cell lines where they have not been exposed to the inhibitor, and these cell lines have not been exposed to enough drug to completely kill off everything. Um, and all of these cells that were tested were normalized for viable cells, so that those, those factors were accounted for in these assays. Interesting enough, uh, when we exposed these cell lines to MEK inhibitors, we also saw the same statistically significant decrease in the BRAF mutated cell lines. Uh, we did see a decrease in the wild type, but it was not statistically significant when compared to their non-inhibitor controls. Dual inhibition with a MEK inhibitor and a BRAF inhibitor um, did not seem to have an additive or synergistic effect um, in either case. Time to peak. Um, so again, another marker of coagulation activation, if it's time to peak, um, was changed with the BRAF mutant cell lines where it was not changed in the wild-type cell lines. <laughs> the MEK inhibitor also provided the same effect. The combination um, of the two um, showed uh, an, uh, an effect that was similar to the single inhibition. Now, you could say that you know, these, uh, these effects were based off of the amount of tissue factor that was present. Because of um, tissue factor is beneficial for cell growth and proliferation, and, um, we actually studied these cells for microRNA of tissue factor, and we found that there was not a significant increase or decrease on any of the cell lines compared to uh, wild type or BRAF mutant. We currently have studies looking at actual tissue factor activity and antigen, um, which are not available for this talk today. But the microRNA levels, or at least, are not statistically significant in terms of controls and BRAF <clears throat> suggesting that there's something else in the pathway that's causing this activation. So our conclusions at this point is that thrombin plays a significant role in thrombosis and possibly in some aggressive tumors that may have a relation to the PAR receptor. Um, thrombin generation may have a role as a biomarker in malignant melanoma and multiple myeloma. And tissue factor RNA levels do not correlate with peak thrombin generation or time to peak thrombin generation, suggesting that tissue factors are uh, only, or not, tissue factor levels are not the only pathway driving thrombin uh, generation in malignant melanoma. Um, inhibition of the BRAF pathway in the B600E mutant cell lines decreases thrombin generation. MEK inhibitors also show a similar decrease in thrombin generation, and dual inhibition uh, does not have an additive effect. So future directions right now is we're exploring um, a one or a 541 cancer gene sequencing panel to look for other mutations that might affect some of the uh, results that we have seen, and we're also looking at the factor 10A and um, tissue factor antigen, which I've already mentioned, to see if it's the 10A expression that Dr. Zakharsky and Dr. Ornstein have shown that's been expressed on the melanoma <coughs> surface that could be related to this phenomenon. So, congratulations, you've made it through another grand rounds. And summary, um, we talked about the history of heparins and warfarins. Um, we reviewed the data on using heparin and warfarin as an adjunct in cancer treatment. And we can't recommend uh, that either of these are uh, a proven uh, benefit at this time. We've shown that thrombin generation may be useful in biomarkers uh, for, as a biomarker, multiple myeloma and melanoma. And we've shown that BRAF inhibition and BRAF mutate cell lines uh, decreases thrombin generation, but this was not seen in wild-type melanoma cell lines. 
Um, as Dr. Pipe has uh, stated before, um, this is the end of my training. I'm actually going to be moving to Washington here in the next couple of months. Um, and uh, I was talking to someone, and this has been 11 years since I graduated from undergraduate to get to this point. Um, and so uh, my wife is here in the back, um, and <laughs> she's very shy. Um, she's, uh, Administration, including our program director uh, Mark Pythas and Tom Davis, uh, who recruited me here, um, Dr. Deb Ornstein for her mentorship and direction over these last years, uh, Bria and Monique for being willing to let me present this at uh, their data at Grand Rounds, Dr. Badul for his mentorship uh, and teaching over the years, uh, Aaron Bagley is our research coordinator, um, which is who's been incredibly helpful getting through all the um, different levels of. Uh, study things that we're supposed to do today, <laughs> we had no idea about. Um, we for taking over the brain tumors uh, and thrombin generation uh, test, the Ernsthoff and the Brinkerhoff uh, labs for all the work that they've done um, in this, and then NECOS and the neuro-oncology uh, section uh, for their generous grant funding. Thank you, and um, take any questions or comments. So this was, those were the animal studies um, back in the Linka era. Um, we don't use warfarin uh, in, uh, in pregnant women. Um, we try to avoid it in lactating females. So I don't have any clinical experience uh, with that. And so um, I, I could only speculate into the cause of that. Um, I don't know. I can make up a lot of things, but the answer is I don't know. <laughs> You mentioned that Toronto's stain, I think, is uh, present in melanoma fields, uh, high blood trauma in the specimens of melanoma tumors. Correct. Uh, is there, has this been looked at in other diseases in the two that come to mind? Of course, pancreatic cancer mm -hmm. and glioma. Yep. Yep. So it's uh, been found in another two, uh, number of tumors. Um, I believe ovarian cancer as well, uh, small cell lung cancer, uh, being some of the others that uh, this impact coagulation cascade has been found. Is the PAR receptor expressed on any of these particular cell lines that you've investigated in vitro? The, um, and does that help explain some of the differences? Yeah. So I'm not I'm not familiar with the different cell lines of how much the PAR receptor is actually expressed. That's one of the thoughts of looking at these melanoma cell lines to see how much the PAR receptor is expressed. Um, and we're considering a flow cytometric analysis of, of, of that as well as the, the 10 Thank you, everyone.